Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy. And today's episode is not only brought to you by our sponsor, NetHealth, but it is a replaying of a webinar that they gave on Thursday, March 26th, Social Distancing for Rehab Therapists, Leveraging Part B In-Home Care and Telehealth in Your COVID-19 Response. So a little bit more about NetHealth. They provide cloud-based software for specialized care. Their solutions support providers in specialty medical settings across the continuum of healthcare from hospital to home. Their interoperable EMRs deliver end-to-end solutions that ensure compliance, improve outcomes, empower providers, and inspire care. They serve over 14,000 facilities, including 98% of the largest hospital chains, two-thirds of skilled nursing facilities, and many leading hospice organizations and private practices. So, last week, they gave a wonderful webinar, Social Distancing for Rehab Therapists. This podcast is going to play that webinar in full, no breaks. So, they care about their practitioners. And in light of the recent COVID-19 pandemic, the CDC has recommended social distancing as a key tactic to help reduce the spread of the virus. In this webinar and in this podcast, the guest speakers, who I'll get to in a second, will discuss two options to help rehab therapists continue delivering care during COVID-19. So our speakers, Hillary Foreman and Rick Gawenda, Hillary Foreman is the Chief Clinical Strategies Officer for Health Pro Heritage, a leading consulting and therapy management firm. She will share best practices for effectively and safely delivering care through Part B in-home care. And consultant Rick Gawenda, also a physical therapist, is president of Gawenda Seminars and Consulting. He'll discuss telehealth legislation now in effect, which supports the practice of social distancing while continuing to deliver necessary outpatient rehab care. In this webinar, they discuss the COVID-19 pandemic and CDC recommendations, risks associated with traditional therapy clinic settings during COVID-19, benefits and best practices associated with delivery of Part B in-home care, and telehealth legislation and application for rehab therapists. Now, we have to also mention that a lot of this legislation is changing daily. So follow Rick Gawenda on Twitter. He is tweeting out all of the latest for every single state. So be sure to follow him on Twitter and be sure to follow NetHealth because they are doing the same. So I want to thank NetHealth for allowing me to uh, get this podcast out to a wider audience. And hopefully with all of the changes going on uh, throughout the country and throughout the world, this will help our rehab therapists navigate this very uncertain times. Okay, welcome everyone. My name is Tana Squatre, and today I'll be kicking us off with our webinar on social distancing for rehab therapists. Before getting into our topic, um, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge and appreciate each of you that are on the call today, as well as the teams that you work with to serve patients in your communities. 
as a physical therapist myself and as part of an organization that proudly serves rehab therapists, this is a really heart-wrenching time as we watch this coronavirus pandemic unfold and impact lives across the world, including the interruption of the, of the care that you provide to your communities. As part of our effort to help rehab professionals continue to deliver care in your communities during a time of, putting my hands in quotes here, social distancing and sheltering in place, phrases that are new to us, we've assembled a team to present for you uh, two business models today, Part B in-home care and e-visits. And we hope that these will facilitate the continuation of the care that you provide while helping your patients and your staff adhere to guidelines that require that during this time we limit the, our physical exposure to one another. We've got an amazing speaker lineup for you today, uh, starting off with Rick Goenda, physical therapist, compliance and billing expert, and president of, of Goenda Seminars. Rick's gonna help us understand some recently expanded legislation regarding telehealth and e-visits for rehab therapists. We have Hillary Foreman, physical therapist and chief clinical strategies officer with HealthPro Heritage. Hillary's gonna walk us through HealthPro's Part B in-home rehab model and how this model is uniquely positioned to help protect her patients and her team during a time of social distancing. And we have Sheila Kugras, registered nurse and director of compliance at NetHealth, who together with Sarah Irie, also a physical therapist, will be setting the stage for us today by introducing us to COVID-19 and considerations that impact us as rehab professionals. Now today's webinar represents our best effort to help rehab therapists adapt to a very unique circumstance. We're working right alongside you to adjust and learn as things change. And um, I, I know in, for all of us, um, things are changing hour by hour at this point. So in our webinar today, we'll be sharing some information that is both fairly broad in nature, and then we're gonna be zooming in to discuss details that are really pretty technical. So we hope that the information will help you stimulate thoughts and ideas that you can use to continue care for your customers. But please do know that the information is changing rapidly and you're gonna to need to verify if and how this information applies to your particular business. Now, finally, for me, on a housekeeping note, we're going to be pretty fluid with this webinar today, and we're going to take the time needed to cover the information that we have planned, as well as time for Q&A at the end. If you have questions that come up during the presentation, please use the Q&A function that you'll find on your desktop or your phone, and we'll get to as many of your questions as we can at the end of the webinar. We have about a thousand attendees on the call today, so we probably won't be able to get through all questions. Um, so we'll be providing our contact information following the webinar, so you can reach out to us um, for follow-up um, if and where that, that is needed for you. And for those that cannot attend, that may be within your organization or colleagues that, that you'd like to have um, attend this webinar um, after the live version, we will be sharing a recording following the live presentation today, so, so expect that in your inbox. So with that, I'm going to hand it over to Sheila Kugras and Sarah Irie to introduce us to COVID-19 and clinical considerations that apply to rehab therapists. Sheila? Thank you, Tannis. Um, as Tannis mentioned, I'm a registered nurse and a certified wound care nurse that is certified in healthcare compliance. I have been at NetHealth for the past 12 years and serve as the compliance subject matter expert for our products. But before I even get started, I really sincerely want to thank all of you on the front lines who are caring for our patients and communities. What you're doing is a, 
is really, really appreciated and very much um, not noticed throughout the world. I'm going to also first state that we recognize that all of you are being inundated with a lot of information for COVID-19 that's coming in through, you know, fire hoses, a lot of information. And it only seems so appropriate, though, that we open with a high level of information we're receiving every day from the CDC to other regulatory and professional agencies across the country. It's also important to note that information is being updated every minute, even as we speak. Um, I'm reading and learning that new regulations and legislation is introduced at us at a startling pace. It's all, we already have over 500 bills and 250 regulations that have been introduced and proposed across the states, and the use of the executive order has skyrocketed. Next slide, please. So we also recognize that this information varies for all of you, depending on where you provide services. You may be in a home health, you may be in a SNF, acute hospital, private practices, assisted living facilities. And with that said, you may have a lot of variations with your facility and local policies and federal guidelines. So we want to keep that in mind. Um, as we know, coronavirus has been around for a long time. And it is a group of related viruses, such as SARS, that causes disease in humans and animals. The World Health Organization, though, recently identified COVID-19 as a new virus group, um, coronavirus, which typically causes respiratory illnesses, and most will recover, as we know, without special treatment. As we've heard, it mostly impacts our elderly population and those that have specific underlying conditions or, and or immunocompromised. We are also hearing about many of the treatments that are off-label that are now being made available, being introduced today for treatment, but currently there is no vaccinations and treatments are just now starting to be introduced off-label. It is active in all 50 states, and I guess it's also active within our surrounding jur four jurisdictions of our country. And the last we've seen reported, um, I know that this is obviously probably updated since, but the last reported by the CDC is 27 are reporting community spread. We are hearing um, that it is also being noted by the New England Journal of Medicine that COVID-19 is also stable in aerosols and on services that can last from several hours to several days. So we want to keep that in mind when a person sneezes or coughs without proper coverage um, into their elbow or their sleeve. It creates a, creates a bubble of air that contains the virus and can be spent, suspended for hours unseen. So with that said, if someone walks through that area an hour later, they could potentially pick up the virus. Next slide, please. So this slide is not only to share with you common recommendations from CDC and the World Health Organization, but also think about setting up competencies for your staff and educating your patients. Um, we obviously wanna maintain that good hand hygiene is being um, occurring, washing for at least 20 seconds with soap and water and hand, hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol. Reasoning is because those soaps we use contain surfactants which neutralize or removes the germs from the pathogens such as COVID-19 that has a crown-like structure and outer membrane made of lipid molecules and protein that is then rinsed down the drain. It's also no, do not touch your face. We hear that a lot with unwashed hands, specifically your eyes, your nose, and your mouth where there's much entry um, into your system. Wear a face mask if indicated by your facility and policy protocols. 
We know there's a lot of uncertainty in this area due to the limitation of supplies. So please check how and when you are to utilize face masks and the type of mask you should be wearing. Disinfect your common touched surface areas often, whether it be tables, doorknobs, countertops, desks, phones, keyboards, and any other equipment that is commonly touched. You, it's also helpful if you increase ventilation by opening windows or adjusting the air conditioning. And we also want you to limit food sharing. Stay home if you're feeling ill or have an ill family member. And most importantly, as you're gonna hear threaded throughout this presentation, and as Tana's mentioned, is social distancing. Um, maintaining a safe distance three to six feet between you and others. Um, it's so important given how this virus is transmitted. Sarah will speak to this further, but before I hand it off to her, I wanna share that I've been listening to other professional organizations speak about ideas and best practices they're sharing. I was on a call a couple of days ago with American um, Hospital Association and CMS with Seema Burma, where she was encouraging the physicians to share ideas. Some are setting up tents outside of their offices to do the screening conducted prior to allowing the patients or staff to enter the building. Some are calling the patients prior to their appointments and asking the series of questions provided by the CDC to triage those patients. And many of you are hearing utilizing telemedicine and you will hear more from our other panel speakers on that topic. Additionally, I heard that NHPCO, which is a hospice professional organization just yesterday, they're getting so creative that they're providing care through windows and standing outside of the patient's home and looking at the patient through the window and addressing the needs with the caregiver at the door. So as we know, this is the time to really get creative and treat your patient safely as much as you can. Okay, Sarah, over to you. Next slide. Thanks for that great information, Sheila. Before we start, I'll let you know a little bit about me. I'm a clinical liaison for NetHealth, but my background is as a physical therapist with nearly 20 years of experience working in various settings, including private practice, hospital outpatient and acute care, and skilled nursing facilities. I'm lucky enough to use my clinical experience here at NetHealth, but I do some clinical work still now and then. Let's continue to build on what you learned from Sheila. An important part of social distancing includes being able to identify patients and staff who have COVID-19 or who may be a risk of carrying or contracting the disease. Many facilities are now using screening protocols, as Sheila mentioned, to identify these individuals. If you're part of a larger organization, check your organization protocols to determine the process for screening patients and staff and know how to refer them for additional testing if they're possibly infected. If you don't have a formal protocol, you might want to consider creating one using sources from the CDC website, as well as checking with your state. The CDC outlines some recommendations, such as using your clinical judgment. Clinicians should use their judgment to determine if a patient has signs and symptoms of COVID-19 and should be tested. So the signs and symptoms that you've heard about include fever, cough, and difficulty breathing. Other risk factors are having contact with someone who has or is suspected to have COVID-19 or pneumonia of an unknown cause within the last 14 days. Someone who's recently traveled outside of the United States or in an affected area and someone who has residence in an area with community spread of COVID-19. Like Sheila mentioned, your screening can actually begin before your patients arrive at your clinic. When you're making remo appointment reminder calls, you might want to consider asking screening questions and making recommendations for exposure risks 
and mildly ill or high-risk patients to stay home per social distancing guidelines. We realize that many of you may still need to see patients in a clinical setting. Next slide, please. So let's consider some ways to keep you and your patients safe while keeping social distancing in mind no matter where you treat your patients. First, follow the screening guidelines we just discussed to decrease your risk in your clinic. You also may want to ask patients to wash their hands prior to starting the treatment session and after. You could even maybe consider having them stand on one foot to practice balance while they wash if it's safe, right? Wash your hands as well. Always follow standard precautions and use PPE per your organizational protocols. Be mindful to follow the six-foot social distancing guideline in the waiting area and your treatment space. So you might need to modify your waiting area seating setup or your scheduling practices to support this model. Maybe use private treatment rooms for patient visits instead of the gym area. Avoid group and concurrent therapy treatment and consider treating patients in their rooms if they reside in a skilled nursing or assisted living facility. Also think about if you can change treatment and treatment plans to decrease physical contact with your patients, but still provide quality care. Examples of this might include instruction in self-mobilization techniques instead of manual adjustments or mobilization, or instructing the patient in use of tools for soft tissue mobilization, such as foam rollers and trigger point release balls, rather than direct therapist to patient touch. Also, consider keeping your patients with one provider per visit instead of sharing care to decrease contact, so you may need to change your scheduling and staffing practices there. Finally, consider educating patients on alternative treatment options such as Part B in-home rehab and e-visits. So let's learn more about Part B in-home rehab with Hillary Foreman from Health Pro Heritage. Thank you so much, Sarah. And as Sarah said, my name is Hillary Foreman. I am the Chief Clinical Strategies Officer at HealthPro Heritage. I am a PT by background, and I've been lucky enough to be with HealthPro for about 18 years now, uh, moving from operations into our clinical role. I have the honor of being in charge of our clinical and consulting business lines over our rehab services that span across the post-acute continuum. So as Sarah said, I wanted to talk to you about our first business model, which is Part B in-home rehab. Though HealthPro Heritage did not start this model in light of the current COVID-19 situation, it now more than ever in this era of social distancing has become one of our standards as it makes more sense as a consideration. This model can be used by both rehab companies and home health agencies to better meet the needs of some of our seniors. So let's start with what is Part B in home rehab? Very simply, it's the concept of the traditional outpatient therapy model being provided in a patient's home as opposed to a freestanding clinic or the gym of a senior living community. Services still remain covered under Medicare Part B. They may also be covered by Managed B or some commercial payers as well. By being able to deliver this service in a patient's home, it provides a lot less anxiety for a patient and a much happier person. Patients in this scenario are not homebound, but due to other circumstances, prefer to stay in their home, whether it be convenience, safety, or cost. 
One caveat to this model is that because patients aren't homebound, they can also not be receiving any Part A benefits, as this is a Part B benefit. So those two insurances do have to be separated. So why would we do Part B in the home? First, as I said, it would be convenience of care. According to some recent AARP statistics, over 89% of patients over 50 years old would prefer to re receive these type of services in their home for many of their own reasons. But now in the era of social distancing, this can be a more protected setting. This can also be a great solution for protecting some of our most vulnerable patients, but continue to provide those essential rehab services with reducing the risk of illness or injury to those patients. Next slide, please. As we continue down the path of why we would do this, one of the other has to do with a lot of the regulations going into place. Many of us are looking to expand our referral base. So whether you're a rehab company or a home health agency, chances are you're looking for different partnerships in your community. In light of changes with PDPM on the skilled side and PDGM on the home health side, and changes in just the level of competition in many markets, you may be looking at different ways to partner with other people in your community. Whether you're looking to expand with physician services, many outpatients we think of as partnering with orthopedic physicians. We all know that orthopedic physicians tend to use their own clinics or hospital-based rehab settings. In this model, Healthcare Heritage chose to partner more with primary care physician groups in order to better expand into the community. These primary care physician groups were community-based or were already partnering with many of the senior living and assisted living communities in the areas. This paired nicely with their house calls programs. So we, just like the physicians, would start making house calls. It became a very good word of mouth referral source for us, as well as a network between different senior living communities who wanted to partner their therapy across all their levels of care. So having therapists provide services through the home health agency, as well as Part B in the home. This helped the therapist become a standard part of the community, whether it be on that campus or in the greater community. Another reason you may consider why we would do Part B in the home is just to reduce overhead. For providers, this model reduces costs associated with brick and mortar clinics and the costs associated with keeping those running or even dedicating space within an assisted living or independent living community. For patients, this reduces a lot of their anxiety. It may also save time, money, and effort for them traveling, worrying about parking, and worrying about keeping all their appointments straight. By having us go to them, it eased a lot of their worry. And lastly, in order to follow any of the trends in healthcare, we all have to change, diversify, and grow. Most importantly, meeting people where they are and where they wanna be. Chances are that is going to be in their homes. We wanted to be able to offer more alternatives to where they could get the essential rehab they needed. Now, again, in the era of social distancing, we were able to meet them 
in their homes and it was a great new business model for us as well. So killing two birds with one stone. But now, as Sheila shared, in the era of COVID-19, we did have to take some additional rehab considerations. So we at Health Pro Heritage decided to do a few things before we ever entered someone's home. First, we implemented a very strict policy of staff monitoring, where staff self-monitor temperature checks twice a day, attest to whether or not they have any signs or symptoms. We even instituted a smell check. Uh, some of the more recent literature indicated that people ahead of coming down with the symptoms of COVID-19 had actually lost their sense of smell. We also reviewed contact or exposure history, looking at what would be a low or high risk exposure and choosing whether or not therapists would see some of our most immunocompromised patients in their homes or not. We also instituted patient screening calls as Sarah suggested, making sure that we not only asked about the patients themselves, but anyone else that might be in the home at the time of the visit. So many of our seniors have their spouses or older children home with them. They may be caregivers for grandchildren. So we did wanna make sure that in addition to asking just about the patient, we knew about them as well. We did follow the CDC guidelines on what we could and couldn't ask, but it also helped us explain to our patients what infection control steps we would take prior to coming into their home. We did focus a lot on our staff and making sure that they understood what those infection control steps were. We did add additional steps in light of the current situation, especially when it came to clean bag and equipment technique. We wanted to take extra care of everything we did or did not take into a patient's house and how we were able to take care of that. The other issue we have run into, and I'm sure many of you on the call have as well, is the availability of PPE. In cases where we do have low risk or high risk situations, patients still may have required care and we did have to make sure that people had the correct availability of PPE and understood proper use and retirement of that PPE. While in the home, we did ask our therapist to continue to maintain social distancing rules from others in the house, in the apartment, or in that senior living community. We did see that there was a lot of opportunity there as well. We were able to be another set of eyes for our seniors in the community or in the senior living community, looking for other needs they may have, being able to address things such as medication that may need to be delivered, additional signs and symptoms of other issues outside of COVID-19 that may increase a patient's risk of rehospitalization. And we were able to work better with our senior living communities in that way. So now that you know a little bit about our model, and now it's time to look to see if this is the right model for you. As you're possibly considering this as part of your growth and diversification strategies, there are a few things, both pro and con, you should consider. If you are a home health agency, there are differences between billing Part A and Part B. You still do have a homebound requirement. You have to look at what those billing differences as well as what the different therapy documentation rules might be. Because this is Part B in the home, it does follow traditional Part B documentation and billing guidelines with all of the modifiers attached. 
A benefit to this is for the home health agency being able to provide additional rehab services after perhaps nursing services have ceased as a need gives you the ability to divert those critical nursing visits to more high-risk patients that may be elsewhere in the community. In this case, rehab would focus mostly on safety in the home and basic ADLs. If you're a rehab company, there's a little bit more to consider here. We were able to, in different parts of the country, operate this model either under a group practice or a rehab agency. These both models have specific regulations by state that vary, and we did need to look into all of those different rules and regulations in setting up the different practices and different locations. The other challenge we had was looking at our therapists and their skill sets. This is a unique model because you do blend the skill sets of a home health therapist by being in the home, being more innovative, and looking at what you have available to you in a home to provide therapy, while mixing it with true outpatient skills. So looking at our therapists being able to work at the top of their license in looking at things from medication management all the way down to manual therapy. As Sarah shared, we did have to make some alterations in the care we've provided recently in light of some of our infection control procedures, but to our patients still receiving that essential therapy was still most beneficial. In some cases in making this decision, you may have to actually look for additional consulting ser services in your area to help you either set up this program or work through the regulations. I hope this gave you a good overview of this possible new business model. And now to talk about our second alternative business model, I pass to our next speaker, Rick Gwenda. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Rick Gwenda. I am a physical therapist. Uh, my wife, I, and another business partner do own two clinics here in Southern California. And then also for the past 17 years, I've been a national speaker, a national consultant uh, on outpatient physical occupational speech therapy as it relates to documentation, CPT coding, diagnosis coding, payment, reimbursement, compliance, denials, all the stuff nobody really likes to talk about. So with that, we're going to talk today about telehealth and e-visits. And as we go to the next slide, uh, this information I'm going to share with you is current as of 2 p.m. Eastern Time today. Because uh, obviously, I used to say things you know change weekly or monthly. Things are changing hourly. Uh, we're seeing many state governors mandate insurance plans in their state cover telehealth. We're seeing insurance companies doing this on their own, saying they're adding PT, OT, SLP as telehealth providers, and we are waiting patiently for updates from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So again, everything is current as I speak today. Most likely, things will change either tomorrow or early next week uh, regarding the Medicare program as well as maybe other insurances in, in many states. So let's, talk, let's begin with the Medicare program first. So CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, issued a document over a week ago. And they talk about three types of virtual services that you see here on this slide. And the common mistake I'm hearing people make is they're using the terms e-visits 
and Tala House interchangeably, synonymously, the same as. And they're not the same. They're completely different. So again, the three types of virtual services per the Medicare program right now are Medicare telehealth visits, which we're going to give you the current status of that coming up, virtual check-ins, which will not apply right now to PTs, OTs, and or SLPs, and then we're going to talk about e-visits that will apply to PTs, OTs, and SLPs. So, as I speak to you today, now about, I believe it's around 2.30 East Coast time, March 26th, the Medicare program still does not pay for telehealth services for outpatient physical, occupational, and or speech therapy services. They consider this a non-covered service. Because the Medicare program does not pay for these services for therapy, and they consider it non-covered, you right now today can provide telehealth services to your Medicare Part B beneficiaries and charge them your cash rate for the telehealth services and an ABN, an advanced beneficiary notice of non-coverage, would not be required to be issued to the Medicare beneficiary. You can issue a voluntary ABN to the Medicare beneficiary if you want to, and I do recommend you do that, but it's not mandated you issue an ABN to the Medicare beneficiary. And the reason why it's not required is an ABN is only issued when normally the services are covered by the Medicare program, but under the circumstance you think Medicare is not going to pay. Well, since right now, today, March 26, telehealth services provided by PTOT SLPs are statutory non-covered, and ABN would not be required. Also, if you are familiar with the ABN form, in Section G, uh, there's three boxes, and the patient's supposed to select one of those three options in Section G. Since you're issuing a voluntary ABN, you are not going to ask the patient to choose an option. The patient does not need to sign and date the ABN because you're not going to be submitting the claim to the Medicare program. So people have been asking me, well, Rick, what CPT codes do we build to Medicare for telehealth? You're not going, as I speak today, you will not submit a claim to Medicare if you're providing telehealth services for outpatient PT, OT, SLP to a Medicare Part B beneficiary because it's statutorily non-covered, and since these services are non-covered, the mandatory claim submission is not required. Now, I will say there is a bill that we expect the House to vote on tomorrow called the Creating Opportunities Now for Necessary and Effective Care Technologies. The acronym is CONNECT, C-O-N-N-E-C-T, Act, the CONNECT Act. And in Section 3703 of that bill, uh, if it gets passed by the House, passed by the Senate, everything stays in, President Trump signs it, it's going to broaden the authority of the Secretary of Health and Human Services to waive telehealth requirements as they currently are. So we're hoping that once this, the House is supposed to take a voice vote on that sometime tomorrow, followed then by the Senate, 
my opinion only, it should pass pretty easily, hopefully, the president signs it, uh, then hopefully then the Secretary of Health and Human Services will then waive the current restrictions for telehealth for Medicare beneficiaries and allow PTs, OTs, and SLPs to provide those services and build the Medicare program for that. Also, as we speak today, in the Office of Management and Budget, there is an interim final rule regarding COVID-19 and some updates in that interim final rule. Unfortunately, we have no clue what's in that interim final rule. It could be some things related to what I'm still going to talk about here today about e-visits, could be about telehealth, could be about easing restrictions on supervision requirements of assistance, could talk about certifications, recertifications. It could have nothing about therapy in it. You know, we don't know. Uh, again, it's still in the Office of Management Budget, the OMB. Uh, hopefully it leaves there either later today or tomorrow and then gets you know, published in the Federal Register. But that's why I have that disclaimer. We expect things to change with the Medicare program here shortly. We expect clarification to come out from CMS on some things we're talking about right now during today's presentation. Let's talk about now e-visits. So again, e-visits and telehealth are not the same. They're two completely th different things. So CMS did come out over a week ago and say that they would pay for e-visits provided by physical therapists, occupational therapists, and speech language pathologists. I cannot stress enough that top bullet point. They must be initiated by the patient for each e-visit which means the patient needs to reach out to you, the provider, either via a phone call, via an email, requesting this e-visit. Now, CMS did clarify, you, the provider of therapy services, can educate the beneficiary on the availability of this service. So you can send out an, an email to your current established patients about the option for an e-visit and all of that. So you can quote, I guess, for lack of a better word, advertise this service. However, the patient must initiate this visit. Now, what we don't know, here's this third bullet point. It says patient must be an established patient with the provider who is conducting the e-visit. And what we're hoping to get soon from CMS is clarification on the definition of an established patient. Because these G-codes I'm going to talk about in, in a moment on the next slide, they actually are brand new this year. Just came out January 1st of 2020. And to be honest with you, they were not designed for what CMS is allowing us to use them for right now. This is not the purpose of these codes. Now, these codes are kind of a, a knockoff, a, a kind of a shoot-off of the 98970 CPT code, 98971 CPT code, 98972 CPT code that are used by physicians for evaluation and management services for these visits done through an online patient portal. Now, when you look at the physicians and the definition of established patient for a physician, this is somebody that has, you know, maybe seen that physician within the last three years. We don't know how CMS is using that definition of established as it pertains to PT, OT, SLP. 
I'll be honest, it could be established patient as in this is a patient that you were currently seeing for therapy services and now they can't come into your clinic right now, you've shut down your clinic, you want to do an e-visit. Is that what they mean by established patient? Could established patient mean this is the patient you've seen sometime in the past three months, the past six months? Are they going to let us go back, you know, quote, three years like they do physicians? We don't know the answer right now. What we do know, though, is if you're going to do an e-visit on a Medicare beneficiary, that that patient could not have been seen by you for a physical visit within the previous seven days for the same condition. And then once you do this e-visit, they're not coming in to see you within seven days for that problem. Now, CMS does say that you must use an online patient portal, and I'm giving you the definition of an online patient portal uh, by the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information, which is a secure online website that gives patients convenient 24-hour access to personal health information from anywhere with an internet connection. And there's the URL link for you. Because people, you know, if you've read the CMS information that's come out, you know, you saw CMS mention that they're, they're laxing, they're kind of easing the HIPAA uh, rules and regulations. You know, you, you saw CMS mention Skype and mention FaceTime. They mentioned Skype and FaceTime for telehealth services, not for e-visits. So right now, again, we're trying to seek clarification from CMS on, boy, can, can you do a phone call? Can you use FaceTime? Can you use Skype for an e-visit? Until we get that clarification, I've got to you know, talk here and say you have to use an online patient portal. And again, you can go on the World Wide Web, go to any search engine you want to go to. I just use Google and type in the search box, you know, types of online patient portals. You know, what is an online patient portal? You know, I know my physician, and again, I'm not endorsing this product. My physician uses the, it's called CHARM, C-H-A-R-M, all capital letters, where she can send me my test results, you know, my lab results. She can give me updates on my medications. You know, I create an account. I log in. I see my test results. I see her email. I can respond to her. She gets notification, you know, things like that. But again, it must be initiated by the patient for each e-visit. Next slide. So here are the three G codes, G2061, G2062, G2063. And I cannot stress enough those words that are underlined, assessment and management, and then cumulative time during the seven days. Let's talk about what are the seven days, when is day one, when is day seven. So here's my example. Let's just say on Monday, March 23rd, the patient reaches out to you either via a phone call or an email requesting an e-visit. You don't respond to them until March 25th. March 25th is going to now be day one which means six days later, that's going to end that seven-day period. So let's just say, you know, on March 23rd, the patient sent you an email requesting an e-visit, and they had some questions for you maybe about their home exercise program or should I use ice or should I use heat or how many times do you want me to do my exercises a day, things like that. 
you respond to them on March 25th, and let's just say, I'm going to make math easy here today, you spend five minutes typing out the instructions, answering their questions, you send that to them on March 25th. On March 27th, the patient responds requesting another e-visit with additional questions. On Friday, March 27th, you spend another five minutes, you know, answering their questions, whatever that may be, send it back to them. On Tuesday, March 31st, patient requests another e-visit with additional clarification. They want some information from you. You spend another five minutes on March 31st answering their questions via email or via that secure online patient portal. You send it back to them. That's, and that's it. You know, there's no more other e-visits within that seven-day period. So I kept math simple. So you did three separate e-visits, spent five minutes each time answering their questions via email, sending it back to them. When you add up five plus five plus five, that is 15 minutes. That's going to fall between 11 to 20 minutes. So in that last day of service during that seven-day period on March 31st, you're going to bill one unit of G2062 because the cumulative time during that seven-day period was 15 minutes. Now, the question I know you want to ask me is, Rick, can we do more than one seven-day period? You know, can I build G2062, say, from March 25th to March 31st, but then from, say, April 3rd to April 9th, I spend 27 minutes, can I do G2063? And this is the answer you hate for me today. We don't know. We're seeking clarification from CMS because, again, these codes were not developed for this purpose. We did not know COVID-19 pandemic was coming when these codes became effective January 1 of 2020. So we're not sure if CMS as well as other insurance companies are going to allow us to bill these G codes uh, for more than one seven-day period. Now, you see it says underlined assessment and management. As we go to the next slide, people always want to know, well, what is a qualified healthcare professional? And this definition comes straight from the American Medical Association. So if you have a CPT book, you know, especially or a more current one, but if you have like a 2018, 2019, 2020 CPT book, at the beginning of the CPT book, a Roman numeral number pages that explains how the book works. Well, the AMA provides this definition of a qualified healthcare professional. And, and really the key is the words or the sentence, who performs a professional service within his, her scope of practice and independently reports that professional service. Well, as a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, a speech language pathologist, you meet this definition because in a private practice, you enroll with Medicare, you enroll with other insurance companies, you get an NPI number, you can report the CPT codes independently of anybody else. Now, people always ask, well, Rick, what about a physical therapist assistant or an occupational therapy assistant? Can they report these G codes you just spoke on? Well, as we go to the next slide, you can now see the definition of a clinical staff per the American Medical Association. And you see in that first bullet point is a person who works under the supervision of a physician or other qualified healthcare professional, but goes on to say, but who does not 
individually report that professional service. So that would include a physical therapist assistant and an occupational therapy assistant. So right now, it's, it's my interpretation, I know APTA's interpretation, that PT assistants, OT assistants, you know, can't provide the e-visit. And also, if you look at the definition, if you go back to two slides for me, please, you know, it says assessment and management. And really, who's assessing the patient? Who's managing and, and changing what's going on with the patient? And that's really within the scope of practice of the therapist, not the assistant. Now, again, we're hoping maybe CMS allows assistants to do these G-codes. We don't know, waiting for clarification. But right now, I, I don't feel comfortable saying they can do it based on the definition of a qualified healthcare professional, as well as the words assessment and management, because that is done by the therapist, not the assistant. If you now go up three slides, please. Now, how about modifiers? Now, CMS did say, if you are submitting a claim on a 1500 claim form, and you, if you submit claims on a 1500 claim form, you are a private practice. The Medicare program did say to attach the CR modifier to the applicable G code. If you are a non-private practice, you submit claims on a UB04 claim form. You not only attach the CR modifier to the G code, but you also need as a condition code DR. So again, that DR is not a modifier, that DR is a condition code. Now, we are hearing issues and concerns from hospitals around the country that these G codes can't be submitted, can't be built on the UB04 claim form. We are still waiting for clarification from CMS on this. You know, can hospitals, can facilities that submit claims on a UB04 claim form, can they build the G codes? Uh, part of me thinks yes, I'll be honest, part of me thinks no, because again, these G codes are kind of a knockoff of the 98970, 98971, 98972 CPT codes, which are really the physician codes, and typically physicians are only billing on a 1500 build these G-codes and get paid uh, by that insurance company. Now, documentation for an e-visit. Extremely important that at minimum, each e-visit you do must have the following documentation. You must document that the patient initiated and or requested the e-visit. You must document the patient consented to the e-visit and then you must document the services, the education, the training that you provided during that e-visit. So an example I gave where you did three e-visits, one on March 25th, one on March 27th, one on March 31st. You would have a note for each data service that would contain at minimum these three bullet points. But the billing would not occur to data service March 31st. Now let's talk about telehealth and TRICARE. You know, it, TRICARE, believe it or not, does cover telehealth services. 
and they've done so since July 26, 2017. And that top bullet point, that sentence is right out of the TRICARE manual that they cover telehealth services if these services are otherwise covered TRICARE benefits. Well, since TRICARE covers outpatient PT, OT, and or SLP services, this means that they would cover telehealth services for PT, OT, and or SLP services. And nice thing about TRICARE is they allow payment for telehealth provided both asynchronous and synchronous. Now, non-Medicare, it's the answer you hate. You've got to go check with every insurance company. And when I say every insurance company, we estimate there are over 6,000 insurance companies in the United States. Whether they cover telehealth, it's all over the board. If they do cover telehealth, which CPT code or CPT codes they allow or want to see all over the board, which modifier or modifiers do they want in every CPT code all over the board. Um, you know, this is changing hourly because we're seeing many uh, state governors uh, issue declarations, issue orders, uh, mandating all insurance plans in their state that are overseen by their insurance commission, you know, cover telehealth. Uh, that's great. You know, we've seen some insurance companies like Michigan Blue Cross, uh, California Blue Shield, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina do this voluntarily where they've now expanded telehealth uh, for PTOT SLP on a temporary basis. And again, the CPT codes I am seeing are all over the board, which ones they want. Uh, just, you know, when, to kind of maybe give you some guidance here, probably the most common codes I'm seeing being allowed for telehealth for PT and OT are 97110, therapeutic exercise, 97112, neuro 97530, therapeutic activities, 97535, self-care home management, and for speech is 92507, the treatment of speech, language, voice, communication, artery processing disorder. You know, don't try billing ultrasound for tele through telehealth. Uh, manual therapy would also be a no through telehealth because your hands have to be on the patient. The other thing to ask when you check with these insurance companies is are they covering telehealth for only patients that were already established? You know, you're already seeing them for therapy. There's already an active, you know, plan of care going on and now they can't come to your clinic? Or are they also covering telehealth for new patients as well? So that's something you're going to want to check. Uh, if you're in a private practice setting, uh, they usually want to see for the place of service code for telehealth be a zero two. So again, extremely important to check with each insurance company and their coverage of telehealth services. You know, how do you keep up to date with all this? You know, number one, Stay current with your national associations, APTA, AOTA, and ASHA. Also, 
check your state association's website. Uh, you know, most of them now have a dedicated page for COVID-19. Many of them are, you know, doing daily updates on information that they find out. You know, why not go bookmark your top four, five, six insurance companies that you deal with in your practice? You know, and again, go to Google. In the search box, just type in, for example, Georgia Medicaid Provider Page, Tri-West Provider Page, Nebraska Blue Cross Blue Shield Provider Page. You notice those last two words stay the same, Provider Page. That's what you want to get to on insurance company's website, the Provider Page. And most of them now have a dedicated COVID-19 page, and they've got a dedicated page for, you know, quote, telemedicine, telerehab, telehealth. And those three terms don't all mean the same thing. We, we, I think we're using them synonymously right now, and I'm okay with that, but they are different. But get on those pairs' websites. If you're not on social media, get on social media. Get on Twitter. Get on Facebook. Many of us are putting out tons of information hourly on all of the changes. Um, not to get too excited about these G codes, just so you know, the Medicare program has about 112 different payment localities across the United States. I'm just using Detroit, Michigan, and you see the approximate payment amounts here. And before we go to get questions, the one thing I really want to say about telehealth, you know, normally if you're going to start telehealth in your practice, in your organization, it's usually about a four, five, six, seven, eight week startup. You know, I know a lot of people are trying to start telehealth in 24 hours and 48 hours. Be careful. You know, even though CMS has eased the HIPAA enforcement, doesn't mean you can be careless. Just because CMS has eased HIPAA does not mean other insurance companies may not come after you. You know, you got to make sure you have your policies and procedures in place if you're going to do telehealth. You know, have you updated your consent forms to include telehealth services? How are you getting your consent forms to your patients for them to sign? You know, how are you documenting in the medical record and keeping track of is the patient consenting to telehealth? Have they consented to be videoed and have that recorded and saved in case they want to look back at it? Uh, you know, what happens if you're doing a telehealth visit and, and you're doing it with Tannis and you see Tannis, all of a sudden he grabs his chest, he becomes short of breath, he falls off his chair, there's an emergency situation. You know, watch your policy, watch your procedure to address those kind of things because you could have a liability. So again, might you need to check with a healthcare attorney to make sure you've got the proper policies and procedures in place because my hope is those of you that are initiating telehealth like right now, when the COVID-19 pandemic is done, I'm hoping you're not done with telehealth. I hope you continue to do telehealth into 2021, 2022, 2023, as I think this is an important uh, aspect of your business growth. Keep in mind, telehealth is not appropriate, not applicable for all of your patients. Outstanding. Thank you so much, Rick, Hillary, Sheila, Sarah. Um, wonderful presentation. Um, we're going to get into some Q&A now, and I will go ahead and moderate um, this portion of the, of the webinar. 
And while, while we're doing this, we have our contact information up on the screen. So for those that would like to get in touch with us, if you have further questions or would like to learn more about what each of, which of, each of us and our organizations are doing to help rehab professionals adapt to COVID-19, um, we wanna have this up on the screen. So with that, um, we've got a lot of questions coming in and I know that we're right up against the, the hour. Um, like I said before, we're gonna be kind of fluid with this. So if you're able to stay on, we're gonna answer as many of these as we can. And then um, anything that we're not able to get to, we'll, we'll figure out a way to, to follow up with you um, independently afterwards. So um, I'm going to start with um, I'm going to start with one here for Rick. Would encrypted organization-based email be considered a secure patient portal for delivering e-visits? Yeah, great question. And again, my opinion, my interpretation as it stands right now today is yes, because the email is encrypted, which usually requires a patient, you know, to create a username and a password to then access that encrypted email. Perfect. Another one for Rick here. Are these codes billable by home health organizations or just outpatient organizations? Well, uh, you know, when you say home health, if you're doing, quote, Part B in the home, uh, that would be built on UB04, which we believe you can build the G-codes. Again, we're just waiting for clarification, where if you're talking home health under, say, Part A, under Home Health Agency Plan of Care, the G-codes would not be applicable to that setting. Excellent. Thank you. And we're going rapid fire here with Rick. I've got, I've got another one here for you. What POS code should be used for hospital-based outpatient clinics with any commercial insurers? Should it still be 02 or does it need to be different? Yeah, great question. And, and again, if you are a private practice, and again, some hospitals, you've got off-site clinics that are set up as a private practice and you submit any 1500 claim form. Uh, if you're doing telehealth services, the place of service code would be a 02. If you are a non-private practice, which again could be, you know, it's a hospital outpatient department, you know, hospitals can have clinics off-site, but it, they still fall under the hospital umbrella. You submit claims on a UB04 claim form, and place of service codes are not used on a UB04. Most likely what you're going to have to use, which we didn't get to really talk about today, uh, when you build the CPT codes, uh, you're probably going to have to put either modifier GT or modifier 95 on the CPT codes, and that indicates that it was telehealth provided through a synchronous communication. Now, I know the follow-up question is going to be, which modifier do I use? It depends on the insurance company. You know, some insurance companies may tell you to use modifier 95. Some may say to use GT if you're not a private practice. So again, unfortunately, you just have to check with every insurance company you wanna do telehealth with. And that's why I'm stressing so much to make sure you've got your policies and procedures in place and you've checked this through risk management, your attorneys, to make sure you've got your I's dotted, T's crossed and all of that. Excellent, thank you. Um, okay, so one here about Part B in home. So um, Hillary, if you can unmute. Um, how is reimbursement different for Part B in-home versus in a freestanding outpatient clinic? Uh, 
Great question. It is not. Um, that is why if a home health agency does choose to implement this program, they are going to have to look into a different way to do their billing. Uh, so it is still done by CPT code with modifiers, uh, just like a traditional outpatient setting. Great. Thank you, Hillary. Um, another one about Part B in home. How long does it take to launch Part B in the home if I only have done freestanding outpatient therapy? Um, it would depend on two things. Uh, one, if you were going to go a group practice or rehab agency route, group practice is much uh, quicker to get up and running, but there are some restrictions, especially depending on the state that you're in. A rehab agency is a much longer process uh, and does uh, require some additional filings. Um, some of them, um, depending on the state you're in, you can uh, do some retro billing in some cases, uh, so you are able to start before everything is completed, but it's very state specific. Uh, if you, whoever asked, if you want to reach out uh, and let me know the state, I'd be happy to point you in the right direction for those answers. Great. Thank you, Hillary. Um, okay, another one here uh, for Rick regarding e-visits. So per a webinar, um, a previous webinar attended, Medicare calls e-visit a non-face-to-face -face consultation, therefore Skype and such may not be required, um, can be done via email or phone call. Is this accurate? I'm sorry, well, I'm, I'm not understanding the question. They're asking, is Skype and FaceTime allowed for e-visit? Is it, um, I, I, I'm interpreting this as, is it required? So this, I'm going to go ahead and restate it. So Medicare calls sure. e-visit a non-face-to-face -face consultation. Therefore, Skype and such not required can be done via email or phone call. Well, again, as I said during the presentation, uh, when CMS discussed Skype and FaceTime in that publication they released, they were using Skype and FaceTime for, quote, telehealth services, uh, not for an e-visit. So right now an e-visit needs to occur uh, via email or a secure online patient portal. Uh, we are waiting for clarification from CMS regarding a phone call. You know, would a phone constitute that? Because right now, as you know, a phone is not considered an online secure patient portal. So right now, I can't tell you to use a phone to do an e-visit. Um, so right now, I would say use encrypted email or use a secure online patient portal such as Charm or, you know, other online patient portals that, that are available to you. All right. Thank you, Rick. Um, okay, another one on e-visits. When asking for an e-visit, do they have to, so the patient, does the patient have to directly address it as this or can they electronically ask a question? So for example, through a communication portal for us to then address outside of the clinic and we can count this as a patient contact. Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, again, this is like, not what these codes are designed for. So obviously if a patient sends you an email asking a question, um, I guess my recommendation, if you want to play it safest, which is what I really have to do right now on this kind of call, is do you respond to the patient and say, you know, would you like me to respond to your question via an encrypted email, via uh, a secure patient portal? As, as, as an e-visit. And if that patient then responds, yes, I would, 
mm-hmm. you know, then I think that that's them requesting that. And I think you then save that email and then you go and address their question or questions that they had. Uh, in my opinion only is I think CMS is going to kind of be lenient on this right now. I think other pairs would be lenient on this right now. But again, you, just in case something were to happen, you, you kind of need to, to cover your rear end and have that documentation there. I also think that since these codes don't really pay a whole heck of a lot of money, uh, you know, when you look at that G2063, you're spending, you know, 21 or more minutes with them during a seven-day period, you know, that payment's going to be somewhere between 32 to $36, depending on what state you're in, what locality you're in. So I don't see CMS really doing a bunch of audits on all this stuff, but it's more just from a legal perspective and to protect yourself in case something ha- were to happen with the patient. Great. Thank you. Um, so I've got one here. I, I'm going to um, pose this to Hillary, and then Sarah, you may want to uh, chime in on this as well. Um, are you tracking COVID-19 related cancellations? How are you doing this in your EMR? Um, we are tracking um, missed visits uh, in our EMR. We just have it uh, placed in the notes section, um, and we're just trying to look at it. We unfortunately are seeing quite a few, uh, many more in the home health side uh, than on the senior living side. But um, I think as we go, uh, we are starting to see more and more people uh, I want to say get more comfortable uh, with infection control, both on their side and on our side. So we we expect to see that pick back up. And um, our customers are able to, for some of our products, create custom questions or, or custom cancellation reasons so that they can just click that that was a reason. Um, and then they can run some cancellation reports um, on cancellations due to COVID-19. Great. Thank you, Sarah. Um, okay, related. Do, do you know or have an estimate of how many PT clinics are still open versus temporarily closing doors due to COVID-19? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Uh, I can speak for Health Pro Heritage. Uh, that's very state-specific. Uh, we have some states where it was ordered that they all close. Uh, a lot voluntarily closed due to um, whether or not they were treating uh, a very uh, immunocompromised caseload. Uh, they voluntarily chose to close for safety reasons. Um, but I would say um, I would say maybe half and half at this point for us. Okay, and this you. is Rick. I think it's just an educated guess. I, I agree. I think it is state-specific. I would also say it's probably also region-specific within a state and the number of cases going on. And as, as I said already, the types of patients you're seeing uh, in terms of diagnosis and also the age of the patient, their comorbidities, their risk for COVID-19. Uh, you know, obviously, did you have a patient that was now diagnosed with COVID-19 and they were already in your clinic yesterday or two days ago, three days ago, is that going to force you then shut down and quarantine your staff? Uh, I I think it's going to be a tough number to really figure out until months down the road. Yeah. And and, and some of the tracking that that I've been, I've had um, um, some visibility into from a, from a new claim flow perspective, um, see, we're seeing about 40 to 60% kind of in that range, regional specific. 
decrease in in the flow of new claims um, and so you can kind of extrapolate from from there in terms of what what utilization is looking like in some some private outpatient practices um, so thank you um, okay so this one's for Rick when billing the G codes on a CMS 1500 form would we bill just the CR modifier or would we bill GPCR for a PTE visit that is a great, great question, <laughs> and you're going to love my answer. I think everybody knows my answer by now. Uh, <laughs> we're seeking clarification of CMS on this, and now if you are familiar with what, what CMS calls always therapy or sometimes therapy CPT codes, those are the ones that always have to have the GP, the GO, or the GN modifier attach them when submitted to Medicare if done under a PT, OT, SLP plan of care. Well, in, in the 2020 version of always and sometimes therapy codes, G2061, G2062, G2063 are not listed in that file, which means right now as we talk today, they're not considered always or sometimes therapy codes, which technically means then GP, GO, GN would not be required. However, we are hearing rumors from CMS that for some strange reason, they're going to actually add G2061, G2062, G2063 as sometimes therapy CPT codes. Then that would require GP, GN, GO modifier, which then means they would actually apply to the annual therapy dollar threshold. Now that's what we're hearing rumors that they're going to do. Again, so we don't know right now. You know, we, because we're waiting for clarification, you know, obviously APTA, AOTA, people like me, we've submitted all these questions to CMS trying to get clarification, but as you can imagine, they're swamped. They're probably trying to figure things out, and we're just waiting for those answers to come out. Thank you, Rick. Um, got one here for Rick or perhaps Sheila. Um, do some of these probable changes in Medicare also apply to Medicaid? Uh, well, I'll, if, number one, no. Uh, so anything Medicare changes is for Medicare. And again, as I always say, as I use the word Medicare, that is traditional Medicare. doesn't include Medicare Advantage. Now, with that being said, by law, Medicare Advantage plans at minimum have to offer and cover the same services that traditional Medicare does. Well, since traditional Medicare is now covering, so they say, those three G codes, 2061, 2062, 2063, that means the Medicare Advantage plans are also supposed to cover those codes as well. But this is not applied to Medicaid because Medicaid is state-specific. Great. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Hillary, uh, how many patients per day can a typical <clears throat> therapist, excuse me, see in Part B in-home care versus traditional settings? Oh, it'll be significantly less. Um, it depends on if you are doing the Part B in the home on a senior living campus uh, where the residents are much closer together or if it is in the larger community. So it is um, very different than a traditional clinic. It would be much more um, aligned to a home health uh, type where you're counting uh, more visits per day. So when doing modeling for that, uh, if you have access to what um, 
traditional, depending on your geography, uh, productivity expectations on the home health side were, they would be much closer to that. Uh, so it could be, uh, again, depending on your geography, uh, could be um, 50 to 60% of what a traditional outpatient would be. Thank you. Rick, regarding initiation and consent by a patient, does this have to be written or can it be verbal? Uh, well, if it's going to be verbal, you almost want to record it. So I would, I would get it written just to cover yourself. Uh, so that, again, I, uh, anytime you're on this, these kind of calls and as a consultant, you always got to, you know, give, I guess, the most stringent advice or whatever. So I would say to have it written. Uh, and it could be something, too, that, you know, do you, do you send them a document? Uh, you know, once they request a visit, do you create a document that you can send to them? Again, I'm not endorsing this product, you know, via DocuSign or some other format where this is all typed out and you have the patient, you know, electronically sign and date, you sign and date, and then you save that document um, is what I would do because you're also going to need to figure out if you're going to be doing telehealth because how you get in them your consent forms and all of that, that they're going to be consenting to telehealth, they're going to be consenting to being videoed and maybe recorded and all of that. So I will always say to try to have as much written down that a patient signs or they sent you an email, something like that, that you can save to show just in case you got called out on it. Great advice. Um, okay, what is, a, what is synchronous versus asynchronous? Eric? You know, asynchronous would be like that online patient portal. So again, I'm not endorsing the product called Charm. It's kind of one-way communication. It's kind of delayed. We're not live together. My doctor sends me an email. She maybe sends it at 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, it comes into my email box. I may not sign into my account until 8 o'clock tonight. <laughs> I go read what she says. I may or may not respond to her today. I may wait till tomorrow, send her a question back or say, thank you for sending. When should I come see you? We're synchronous uh, telecommunication, which is really what I think I hope you're going to be doing if you're doing telehealth, it's, it's live, simultaneous, two-way audio-visual communication. So, you know, think of FaceTime, okay? But, you know, there's, and again, as I say, some of these platforms, I'm not endorsing them, like Doxy.me, Zoom. I know Google has something out there. There's a lot of platforms out there. But the Nagel use this, think of FaceTime. So I can see Ben, Ben can see me, I can demonstrate exercise to Ben, I can watch him do the exercises, correct him. So it's, it's live, simultaneous audio-visual communication. Great, thank you. And again, I love Google. Just go to Google and type in asynchronous versus synchronous communication and all that will come up and you can also find different platforms you can use as well. Okay, awesome. Uh, okay, um, Hillary, I am a physical therapist in private practice. Am I allowed to do in-home Part B, or is it only for a group practice and or rehab agency? It would be for a rehab agency or a group practice. So there are ways to um, to convert into those to be able to, uh, there's some filings, again, depending on the state you're in, uh, that could easily allow for that. But uh, you do have to go through some of those hoops to get there. Okay, thank you. 
Rick, okay, so um, this one says, just clarifying that we cannot do an e-visit to qualify as a fifth or tenth visit. Correct. So as we understand it, an e-visit is not going to count as a visit towards the Medicare tenth visit progress report. So for example, you know, you had a patient, uh, you know, come in and they had already had eight visits and then you shut the clinic down, a patient is apprehensive about coming in for an actual visit and now you do two e-visits the next, you know, on March 26th and March 31st, that's not visit nine and visit 10 towards a 10th visit progress report. So as we understand it today, e-visits do not count towards the 10th visit progress report. They don't count as an actual visit where a patient came in to see you. Okay, thank you. Okay, and I'm doing a time check here. We're going to continue for a few more minutes. We've got a lot of questions coming in, so we will do some follow-up from here, um, but, but I am going to kind of roll through a few final questions here. So um, this one can be, this may be Hillary, Sheila, Sarah. Um, what PPE do you recommend or are you seeing in use for an asymptomatic home therapy patient? This is Sheila. Hi. Um, I would definitely recommend that you check with your local carrier, or not your local carrier, but your local facility protocols and what supplies are available and what they have set up. It's been strongly recommended that protocols are set up at the local levels and what your state local health departments are recommending. Um, that would be your first place to check because I'm not sure which state you're in, but there is a website for all the states and you can check your local health department. Um, I was also gonna ask you, Tinas, if we could provide that as a follow-up as well, that uh, URL link. Yes, uh, absolutely. So we can, we can work that into our follow-up communications. Um, here's another one. Can you elaborate, this is for Hillary, can you elaborate a little more on the differences between home health provided via home health agency versus rehab company or provide a good resource which explains the difference? Um, sure, I could actually provide, um, we have a side-by-side -side that Tanis, I could provide that you could share as part of the follow-ups from this. Um, a lot of it has to do uh, with the billing process. Some of it has to do with credentialing of the therapists. Um, for example, in a group practice, there's 855B forms where uh, therapists have their own PTAN numbers. Uh, only therapists can provide services under a rehab agency, different states, different filings. Assistants might be able to provide those services uh, to do the Part B in the home. Uh, so there are um, the state specifics, and then there's the therapist specifics, uh, and then there's the billing specifics. So those are probably the three big buckets. Uh, but like I said, we have a side-by-side -side that, Tanis, I'll make sure that you have to send out. Thank you, Hillary. Rick, are e-visits covered at the same 80-20 percentage as a typical outpatient visit where the patient is responsible for a 20% coinsurance or that 20% gets sent along to their supplemental or secondary insurance? Yes, uh, CMS did say that you know, these, the G2061, 2062, 2063, that they would count towards you know, any deductibles, any coinsurance would apply. 
So again, the Medicare program, and on my, my last slide where I gave you the, the pricing for Detroit, Michigan, the Medicare program would be 80% of that allowed amount. And if they have a supplemental plan, you know, that, that Medigap plan, hopefully they would pick up the other 20%. Uh, if they don't have a supplemental plan, and then the patient would be responsible for the other 20%. Thank you. Rick, our work comp pair, work comp carriers paying for telemedicine for PT? And my favorite answer, yes, no, maybe so, depends. Uh, <laughs> and again, I, I know it's the answer people hate. Uh, unfortunately, back when I graduated PT school, way back in 1991, it was pretty easy for us back then because every state just had one work comp. We just had Michigan work comp, Nebraska work comp, California work comp, but now we have all these middlemen like a line network, one call, med risk, et cetera. You have, unfortunately, have to do due diligence and check with every insurance company. And I'll be honest, you could call an insurance company and we're just gonna make it Ben. And you talk to Ben Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and you ask Ben the exact same question five days in a row, and Ben gives you five different answers on five different days. Now that's not because he has five different personalities. More, no offense to the people on the insurance lines right now, they have an impossible job right now. Uh, they're, they're not knowledgeable on COVID-19 and all these changes that are going on and, and things like that. Because I'm hearing people all the time say, well, I called United Healthcare and they tell me they pay for telehealth for therapy. Well, did you get the link? Did you get the citation somewhere on their website? No, I didn't. Because if you go to the UHC website, UHC still does not pay for telehealth. So again, what you're being told on the phone may or may not be correct. So again, very important to know how you're asking the question and maybe kind of go for the answer you want to get, you know, kind of phrase the question so the answer may be your way. But even if they answer your way, ask them for the citation. You know, ask them on your website, where is it? You know, can you walk me to it so I can see it in writing? Because if it's not in writing, it may or may not be true what they're telling you on the telephone. Thank you. Um, okay, so we're going to do three more questions, and um, and then and then we'll go ahead and wrap up at that point in time. So I just want to do a time check here. We're mindful of everyone's time. Um, Hillary, how are you documenting new patient screening calls prior to initiating care? Uh, in a variety of our systems, we were able to add uh, an additional note. Um, in some systems, we actually added the screening questions. So uh, either we would uh, do the screening questions and then the patient note would be together. So then once we did the visit, they would be together. Uh, and in some cases, we've done the screening questions followed by a withheld or a refusal if, if something in that screening uh, then indicated that we should not be seeing the patient that day or they refused that day or whatever those uh, challenges might be. But we actually had added those to the system for that exact reason. Thank you. Sarah, do you have anything to add on that? I'm not sure if there's anything that you're seeing with, with customers documenting screening calls. Um, I would agree definitely with Hillary. The only thing is, you know, check with your organization, um, depending on, you know, your, your organization might want you to put it in your registration software if you have a hospital interface versus um, the actual up, uh, documentation application. Um, but definitely important to document those screens. Okay, thank you. 
Uh, okay, Rick, are there any differences for critical access hospitals with telehealth, e-visits, billing, or reimbursement? Uh, you know, I, again, with e-visits, we are waiting for clarification from CMS on, you know, can non-private practices, you know, bill for the G-codes, be paid for the G-codes. So once we get that answer, of course, that would apply, you know, whether you're a critical access hospital or a regular hospital. Uh, we're also, you know, critical access hospitals, you are not paid under the Medicare physician fee schedule. You are paid on a cost ratio basis. That's the other, quote, unknown. Uh, and again, with, with telehealth, you want to check your conditions of participation with the Medicare program as a telehealth provider. Again, Medicare does not pay for telehealth. You then have to look at your contracts with the other insurance companies you've signed. So again, I think whether you're a critical access hospital, a regular hospital, your home health agency doing part B in the home, your private practice, it's kind of doing your due diligence and checking with uh, all those other insurance companies. Okay, thank you. So Sheila, I'm gonna direct this one to you and this is, in, and then more broadly, we're getting a lot, of, uh, a lot of questions have come in about specific, um, specific guidelines with regard to protecting employees and, and patients and use of masks and, and PPE. Um, so, so the, the, the one question that I think encapsulates it here, do employees have the right to refuse to treat positive COVID-19 patients if PPE is not available? Um, we know that PPE is in short supply um, and not available in some areas. And so I, the, the way that I think that we should frame this up is, do you have a recommendation for resources that, that our audience can use locally that can help guide them in the right direction for some of these broadly um, these broad questions about safety of, of caregivers and, and how they're treating patients in this, in this uh, COVID-19 period? Yes, that's a really tough question. <laughs> um, there are some resources, like you said, that they could check with their state practice um, acts, um, as well as looking at their um, local professional chapters and seeing if they can provide guidance there as well as their local health departments and what are their rights as employees um, and receiving that PPE. I am hearing that quite a bit and it's all over the news uh, that PPE is at a high demand and, and it's, there's shortage everywhere across the country. So that's a really hard one for me to give guidance or advice on, but there are definitely are resources where you could check where are your rights in protecting yourself in um, when you're employed. So I would start with your State Practice Act as long as, as well as your professional um, organizations and your local health departments. Great. Thank you. Okay, so um, so we're about to wrap. There, there have been uh, um, some questions coming in about access to these materials, including the the slide deck. Um, yes, we will make this all available to you. The recording, I think, it's going to come out to you um, automatically, and we will we will find a way to get you the um, the slide deck as well, whether that's an, uh, included in a link in that email or or some other means. Um, so um, so yes, we will we will make sure that you've got uh, all of the information here. I want to um, I want to thank our our presenters, um, this is just, uh, you know, we spun this up very quickly, um, you know, over the past few days, um, really appreciate you taking the time and investing in uh, our ability to help our, our um, rehab professionals get this valuable information. So a special thank you to Rick 
Rick Linda and Hillary Foreman, um, also Sarah and Sheila for for um, for helping us put this together, and to all of you that that are out there on the front lines um, adapting your business models to to continue the rehab care that that is needed in your communities, we just really appreciate you. Th thank you, and and are thinking about you. Um, constantly. We will have uh, additional webinars that are coming out of the NetHealth organization. Um, by, by you registering for this webinar, we will be able to make contact with you and let you know about those if, if you would like to attend more, um, more sessions. And once again, um, thank you so much for attending. Uh, be safe and be well. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.